The Insurrection in Dublin by James Stevens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This is Part 2, Incorporating Chapters 2 and 3. Chapter 2, Tuesday. A sultry, lowering day, and dusk skies fat with rain. I left for my office, believing that the insurrection was at an end. At a corner I asked a man, was it all finished? He said it was not, and that, if anything, it was worse. On this day the rumours began, and I think it will be many a year before the rumours cease. The Irish Times published an edition which contained nothing but an official proclamation that evilly disposed persons had disturbed the peace, and that the situation was well in hand. The news stated in three lines that there was a Sinn Féin rising in Dublin, and that the rest of the country was quiet. No English or country papers came, there was no delivery or collection of letters, all the shops in the city were shut, there was no traffic of any kind in the streets, there was no way of gathering any kind of information, and rumour gave all the news. It seemed that the military and the government had been taken unawares. It was bank holiday, and many military officers had gone to the races or were away on leave, and prominent members of the Irish government had gone to England on Sunday. It appeared that everything claimed on the previous day was true, and that the city of Dublin was entirely in the hands of the volunteers. They had taken and sacked Jacob's Biscuit Factory, and had converted it into a fort which they held. They had the post office, and were building barricades around it, ten feet high of sandbags, cases, wire entanglements. They had pushed out all the windows, and sandbagged them to half their height, while cartloads of food, vegetables, and ammunition were going in continually. They had dug trenches, and were laying siege to one of the city barracks. It was current that intercourse between Germany and Ireland had been frequent chiefly by means of submarines which came up near the coast and landed machine-guns, rifles and ammunition. It was believed also that the whole country had risen and that many strong places and cities were in the hands of the volunteers. Cork Barracks was said to be taken while the officers were away at the Curra races, and the men without officers were disorganised and the place easily captured. It was said that Germans, thousands strong, had landed and that many Irish-Americans with German officers had arrived also with full military equipment. On the previous day the volunteers had proclaimed the Irish Republic. This ceremony was conducted from the Mansion House steps, and the manifesto was said to have been read by Pierce of St. Edna's. The Republican and volunteer flag was hoisted on the Mansion House. The latter consisted of vertical colours of green, white and orange. Kerry Wireless Station was reported captured, and news of the Republic flashed abroad. These rumours were flying in the street. It was also reported that two transports had come in the night and had landed from England about 8,000 soldiers. An attack reported on the post office by a troop of lancers who were received with fire and repulsed. It is foolish to send cavalry into street war. In connection with this lancer charge at the post office, it is said that the people, and especially the women, sided with the soldiers, and that the volunteers were assailed by these women with bricks, bottles, sticks, to cries of, Would you be hurting the poor men? There were other angry ladies who threatened volunteers, addressing to them this petrifying query, Would you be hurting the poor horses? Indeed, the best people in the world live in Dublin. 
The Lancers retreated to the bottom of Sackville Street, where they remained for some time in the centre of a crowd who were caressing their horses. It may have seemed to them a rather curious kind of insurrection, that is, if they were strangers to Ireland. In the post-office neighbourhood, the volunteers had some difficulty in dealing with the people who surged about them while they were preparing the barricade, and hindered them to some little extent. One of the volunteers was particularly noticeable. He had a lady's umbrella in his hand, and whenever some person became particularly annoying, he would leap the barricade and chase his man half a street, hitting him over the head with the umbrella. It was said that the wonder of the world was not that Ireland was at war, but that after many hours the umbrella was still unbroken. A volunteer night attack on the quays was spoken of, whereat the military were said to have been taken by surprise and six carts of their ammunition captured. This was probably untrue. Also, that the volunteers had blown up the arsenal in the Phoenix Park. There had been looting in the night about Sackville Street, and it was current that the volunteers had shot twenty of the looters. The shops attacked were mainly haberdashers, shoe shops and sweet shops. Very many sweet shops were raided, and until the end of the rising sweet shops were the favourite mark of the looters. There is something comical in this looting of sweet shops, something almost innocent and childlike. Possibly most of the looters are children, who are having the sole gorge of their lives. They have tasted sweetstuffs they had never toothed before and will never taste again in this life, and until they die the insurrection of 1916 will have a sweet savour for them. I went to the green. At the corner of Merrion Row a horse was lying on the footpath surrounded by blood. He bore two bullet wounds, but the blood came from his throat, which had been cut. Inside the green railings four bodies could be seen lying on the ground. They were dead volunteers. The rain was falling now persistently, and persistently from the green and from the Shelburne Hotel snipers were exchanging bullets. Some distance beyond the Shelburne I saw another volunteer stretched out on a seat just within the railings. He was not dead, for now and again his hand moved feebly in a gesture for aid. The hand was completely red with blood. His face could not be seen. He was just a limp mass, upon which the rain beat pitilessly, and he was sudden and shapeless and most miserable to see. His companions could not draw him in, for the spot was covered by the snipers from the Shelburne. Bystanders stated that several attempts had already been made to rescue him, but that he would have to remain there until the fall of night. From Trinity College windows and roof there was also sniping, but the Shelburne Hotel riflemen must have seriously troubled the volunteers in the green. As I went back I stayed a while in front of the hotel to count the shots that had struck the windows. There were fourteen shots through the ground windows. The holes were cleaned through, each surrounded by a star. The bullets went through but did not crack the glass. There were three places in which the windows had holes half a foot to a foot wide and high. Here many rifles must have fired at the one moment. It must have been as awkward inside the Shelburne Hotel as it was inside the Green. A lady who lived in Baggett Street said she had been up all night and, with her neighbours, had supplied tea and bread to the soldiers who were lining the street. The officer to whom she spoke had made two or three attacks to draw fire and estimate the volunteers' positions, numbers, etc. And he told her that he considered there were three thousand well-armed volunteers in the Green, and, as he had only one thousand soldiers, he could not afford to deliver a real attack, and was merely containing them. 
Amiens Street Station reported recaptured by the military. Other stations are said to be still in the volunteers' possession. The story goes that about twelve o'clock on Monday an English officer had marched into the post office and demanded two penny stamps from the amazed volunteers who were inside. He thought their uniforms were postal uniforms. They brought him in, and he is probably still trying to get a perspective on the occurrence. They had as prisoners in the post office a certain number of soldiers, and rumour had it that these men accommodated themselves quickly to duress, and were busily engaged peeling potatoes for the meal which they would partake of later on with the volunteers. Earlier in the day I met a wild individual who spat rumour as though his mouth were a machine-gun or a linotype machine. He believed everything he heard, and everything he heard became as by magic favourable to his hopes, which were violently anti-English. One unfavourable rumour was instantly crushed by him, with three stories which were favourable and triumphantly so. He said the Germans had landed in three places. One of these landings alone consisted of fifteen thousand men. The other landings probably beat that figure. The whole city of Cork was in the hands of the volunteers, and to that extent might be said to be peaceful. German warships had defeated the English, and their transports were speeding from every side. The whole country was up, and the garrison was outnumbered by one hundred to one. These Dublin barracks, which had not been taken, were now besieged and on the point of surrender. I think this man created and winged every rumour that flew in Dublin, and he was the sole individual whom I heard definitely taking aside. He left me, and looking back, I saw him pouring his news into the ear of a gaping stranger whom he had arrested for the purpose. I almost went back to hear would he tell the same tale, or would he elaborate it into a new thing, for I am interested in the art of storytelling. At eleven o'clock the rain ceased, and to it succeeded a beautiful night, gusty with wind, and packed with sailing clouds and stars. We were expecting visitors this night, but the sound of guns may have warned most people away. Three only came, and with them we listened from my window to the guns at the green challenging and replying to each other, and to where further away the Trinity snipers were crackling, and beyond again to the sounds of war from Sackville Street. The firing was fairly heavy, and often the short rattle of machine-guns could be heard. One of the stories told was that the volunteers had taken the South Dublin Union workhouse, occupied it, and trenched the grounds. They were heavily attacked by the military, who at a loss of a 150 men took the place. The tale went that towards the close the officer in command offered them terms of surrender, but the volunteers replied that they were not there to surrender. They were there to be killed. The garrison consisted of fifty men, and the story said that fifty men were killed. CHAPTER THREE WEDNESDAY it was three o'clock before I got to sleep last night, and during the hours machine-guns and rifle-firing had been continuous. This morning the sun is shining brilliantly, and the movement in the streets possesses more of animation than it has done. The movement ends always in a knot of people, and folk go from group to group vainly seeking information, and quite content if the rumour they presently gather differs even a little from the one they have just communicated. The first statement I heard was that the green had been taken by the military, the second that it had been retaken, the third that it had not been taken at all. The facts at last emerged that the green had not been occupied by the soldiers, 
but that the volunteers had retreated from it into a house which commanded it. This was found to be the College of Surgeons, and from the windows and roof of this college they were sniping. A machine-gun was mounted on the roof. Other machine-guns, however, opposed them from the roofs of the Shelburne Hotel, the United Service Club, and the Alexandra Club. Thus a triangular duel opened between these positions across the trees of the park. Through the railings of the green some rifles and bandoliers could be seen lying on the ground, as also the deserted trenches and snipers' holes. Small boys bolted in to see these sights and bolted out again with bullets quickening their feet. Small boys do not believe that people will really kill them, but small boys were killed. The dead horse was still lying stiff and lamentable on the footpath. This morning a gunboat came up the Liffey and helped to bombard Liberty Hall. The hall is breached and useless. Rumour says that it was empty at the time and that Connolly with his men had marched long before to the post office and the green. The same source of information relates that three thousand volunteers came from Belfast on an excursion train and that they marched into the post office. On this day only one of my men came in. He said that he had gone on the roof and had been shot at, consequently that the volunteers held some of the covering houses. I went to the roof and remained there for half an hour. There were no shots, but the firing from the direction of Sackville Street was continuous and at times exceedingly heavy. Today the Irish Times was published. It contained a new military proclamation and a statement that the country was peaceful, and told that in Sackville Street some houses were burned to the ground. On the outside railings a bill proclaiming martial law was posted. Into the newspaper statement that peace reigned in the country one was inclined to read more of disquietude than of truth, and one said, is the country so extraordinarily peaceful that it can be dismissed in three lines? There is too much peace or too much reticence, but it will be some time before we hear from outside of Dublin. Meanwhile the sun was shining. It was a delightful day, and the streets outside and around the areas of fire were animated and even gay. In the streets of Dublin there were no morose faces to be seen. Almost everyone was smiling and attentive and a democratic feeling was abroad, to which our city is very much a stranger, for while in private we are a sociable and talkative people, we have no street manners or public ease whatever. Every person spoke to every other person, and men and women mixed and talked without constraint. Was the city for or against the volunteers? Was it for the volunteers and yet against the rising? It is considered now, writing a day or two afterwards, that Dublin was entirely against the volunteers, but on the day of which I write no such certainty could be put forward. There was a singular reticence on the subject. Men met and talked volubly, but they said nothing that indicated a personal desire or belief. They asked for and exchanged the latest news, or rather rumour, and while expressions were frequent of astonishment at the suddenness and completeness of the occurrence, no expression of opinion for or against was anywhere formulated. Sometimes a man said, They will be beaten, of course, and as he prophesied, the neighbour might surmise if he did so with a sad heart or a merry one, but they knew nothing and asked nothing of his views, and themselves advanced no flag. This was among the men. The women were less guarded, or perhaps knew they had less to fear. Most of the female opinion I heard was not alone unfavourable, but actively and viciously hostile to the rising. This was noticeable among the best-dressed class of our population, 
the worst dressed, indeed the female dregs of Dublin life, expressed a like antagonism and almost in similar language. The view expressed was, I hope every man of them will be shot, and they ought to be all shot. Shooting indeed was proceeding everywhere. During daylight at least the sound is not sinister nor depressing, and the thought that perhaps a life had exploded with that crack is not depressing either. In the last two years of world war our ideas of death have undergone a change. It is not now the furtive thing that crawled into your bed and which you fought with pill-boxes and medicine-bottles. It has become again a rider of the wind whom you may go coursing with through the fields and open places. All the morbidity has gone and the sickness and what remains to death is now health and excitement. So Dublin laughed at the noise of its own bombardment, and made no moan about its dead in the sunlight. Afterwards, in the rooms, when night fell, and instead of silence, that mechanical barking of the maxims, and the whistle and screams of the rifles, the solemn roar of the heavier guns, and the red glare covering the sky, it is possible that in the night Dublin did not laugh, and that she was gay in the sunlight, for no other reason than that the night was past. On this day fighting was incessant at Mount Street Bridge. A party of volunteers had seized three houses covering the bridge and converted these into forts. It is reported that military casualties at this point were very heavy. The volunteers are said also to hold the South Dublin Union. The soldiers have seized Guinness's brewery, while their opponents have seized another brewery in the neighbourhood, and between these two there is a continual fusillade. Fighting is brisk about Ring's End and along the canal. Dame Street was said to be held in many places by the volunteers. I went down Dame Street but saw no volunteers and did not observe any sniping from the houses. Further, as Dame Street is entirely commanded by the roofs and windows of Trinity College, it is unlikely that they should be here. It was curious to observe this. At other times, so animated street, broad and deserted, with at the corners of side streets small knots of people watching. Seen from behind, Grattan's statue in College Green seemed almost alive, and he had the air of addressing warnings and reproaches to Trinity College. The proclamation issued today warns all people to remain within doors until five o'clock in the morning and after seven o'clock at night. It is still early. There is no news of any kind, and the rumours begin to catch quickly on each other and to cancel one another out. Dublin is entirely cut off from England and from the outside world. It is just as entirely cut off from the rest of Ireland. No news of any kind filters into us. We are landlocked and sea-locked, but as yet it does not much matter. Meantime, the belief grows that the volunteers may be able to hold out much longer than had been imagined. The idea at first among the people had been that the insurrection would have ended the morning after it had began. But today, the insurrection having lasted three days, people are ready to conceive that it may last forever. There is almost a feeling of gratitude towards the volunteers because they are holding out for a little while. For had they been beaten the first or second day, the city would have been humiliated to the soul. People say, of course they will be beaten. The statement is almost a query, and they continue, but they are putting up a decent fight. For being beaten does not greatly matter in Ireland, but not fighting does matter. They went forth always to the battle, and they always fell. Indeed, the history of the Irish race is in that phrase. 
the firing from the roofs of Trinity College became violent. I crossed Dame Street some distance up, struck down the keys, and went along these until I reached the ballast office. Further than this it was not possible to go, for a step beyond the ballast office would have brought one into the unending stream of lead that was pouring from Trinity and other places. I was looking on O'Connell Bridge in Sackville Street, and the house facing me was Kelly's, a red-brick fishing-tackle shop, one half of which was on the quay and the other half in Sackville Street. This house was being bombarded. I counted the report of six different machine-guns which played on it. Rifles innumerable, and from every sort of place, were potting its windows, and at intervals of about half a minute the shells from a heavy gun lobbed in through its windows or thumped mightily against its walls. For three hours that bombardment continued, and the walls stood in a cloud of red dust and smoke. Rifle and machine-gun bullets pattered over every inch of it, and unfailingly the heavy gun pounded its shells through the windows. One's heart melted at the idea that human beings were crouching inside that volcano of death, and I said to myself, not even a fly can be alive in that house. No head showed at any window, no rifle cracked from window or roof in reply. The house was dumb, lifeless, and I thought every one of those men are dead. It was then, and quite suddenly, that the possibilities of street fighting flashed on me, and I knew there was no person in the house, and said to myself, They have smashed through the walls with a hatchet, and are sitting in the next house, or they have long ago climbed out by the skylight, and are on a roof half a block away. Then the thought came to me, They have and hold the entire of Sackville Street down to the post office. Later on this proved to be the case, and I knew at this moment that Sackville Street was doomed. I continued to watch the bombardment, but no longer with the anguish which had before torn me. Nearby there were four men, and a few yards away clustered in laneway there were a dozen others. An agitated girl was striding from the farther group to the one in which I was, and she addressed the men in the most obscene language which I have ever heard. She addressed them man by man, and she continued to speak and cry and scream at them with all that obstinate, angry patience of which only a woman is capable. She cursed us all. She called down diseases on every human being in the world, excepting only the men who were being bombarded. She demanded of the folk in the laneway that they should march at least into the roadway, and prove that they were proud men and not afraid of bullets. She had been herself in the danger zone, had stood herself in the track of the guns, and had there cursed her fill for half an hour, and she desired that the men should at least do what she had done. This girl was quite young, about nineteen years of age, and was dressed in the customary shawl and apron of her class. Her face was rather pretty, or it had that pretty slenderness and softness of outline which belonged to youth. But every sentence she spoke contained half a dozen indecent words. Alas, it was only that her vocabulary was not equal to her emotions, and that she did not know how to be emphatic without being obscene. It is the cause of most of the meaningless swearing one hears every day. She spoke to me for a minute, and her eyes were as soft as those of a kitten, and her language was as gentle as her eyes. She wanted a match to light a cigarette, but I had none, and said that I also wanted one. In a few minutes she brought me a match, and then she recommenced her tireless weaving of six vile words into hundreds of stupid sentences. About five o'clock the guns eased off of Kelly's. To inexperienced eyes they did not seem to have done very much damage, but afterwards one found that although the walls were standing and apparently solid, 
there was no insight to the house. From roof to basement the building was bare as a dog kennel. There were no floors inside, there was nothing there but blank space, and on the ground within was the tumble and rubbish that had been roof and floors and furniture. Everything inside was smashed and pulverized into scrap and dust, and the only objects that had consistency and their ancient shape were the bricks that fell when the shells struck them. Rifle shots had begun to strike the house on the further side of the street, a jeweler's shop called Hopkins and Hopkins. The impact of these balls on the bricks was louder than the sounds of the shot which immediately succeeded, and each bullet that struck brought down a shower of fine red dust from the walls. Perhaps thirty or forty shots in all were fired at Hopkins, and then, except for an odd crack, firing ceased. During all this time there had been no reply from the volunteers, and I thought they must be husbanding their ammunition, and so must be short of it, and that it would be only a matter of a few days before the end. All this, I said to myself, will be finished in a few days, and they will be finished. Life here will recommence exactly where it let off, and except for some newly filled graves, all will be as it had been until they become a tradition and enter the imagination of their race. I spoke to several of the people about me, and found the same willingness to exchange news that I had found elsewhere in the city, and the same reticences as regarded their private opinions. Two of them, indeed, and they were the only two I met with during the insurrection, expressed, although in measured terms, admiration for the volunteers, and while they did not side with them, they did not say anything against them. One was a labouring man, the other a gentleman. The remark of the latter was, I am an Irishman, and pointing to the shells that were bursting through the windows in front of us. I hate to see that being done to other Irishmen. He had come from some part of the country to spend the Easter holidays in Dublin, and was unable to leave town again. The labouring man, he was about fifty-six years of age, spoke very quietly and collectedly about the insurrection. He was a type with whom I had come very little in contact, and I was surprised to find how simple and good his speech was, and how calm his ideas he thought labour was in this movement to a greater extent than was imagined. I mentioned that Liberty Hall had been blown up, and that the garrison had either surrendered or been killed. He replied that a gunboat had that morning come up the river and blown Liberty Hall into smash, but he added there were no men in it. All the labour volunteers had marched with Connolly into the post office. He said that the labour volunteers might possibly number about one thousand men, but it would be quite safe to say eight hundred, and he held that the labour volunteers, or the citizens' army as they called themselves, had always been careful not to reveal their numbers. They had always announced that they possessed about two hundred and fifty men, and had never paraded any more than that number at any one time. Working men, he continued, knew that the men who marched were always different men. The police knew it too, but they thought that the citizens' army was the most deserted from force in the world. The men, however, were not deserters. You don't, he said, desert a man like Connolly. And they were merely taking their turn at being drilled and disciplined. They were raised against the police who, in the big strike of two years ago, had acted towards them with unparalleled savagery, and the men had determined that the police would never again find them thus disorganized. This man believed that every member of the Sison Army had marched with their leader. The men I know, said he, would not be afraid of anything, and, he continued, they are in the post office now. What chance have they? 
"'None,' he replied. "'And they never said they had, and they never thought they would have any.' "'How long do you think they'll be able to hold out?' He nodded towards the house that had been bombarded by heavy guns. "'That will root them out of it quick enough,' was his reply. "'I'm going home,' said he then. "'The people will be wondering if I'm dead or alive.' And he walked away from that sad street, as I did myself a few minutes afterwards. This ends Part 2 of The Insurrection in Dublin by James Stevens.